0: Hello and welcome to your Actives AgriFood podcast. I'm Natasha Foote.
1: and I am Gerardo Fortuna.
0: And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from your AgriFood news team.
1: Welcome to another episode of the AgriFood podcast. This week we're going to talk about both the agri and the food part, mm. but we're going to start with the the latter,
0: the food part. We
1: actually start with the latter
0: oh stop <laughs>
1: this, this wasn't prepared eh? this
0: is just the beginning this is just the beginning
1: <laughs> I mean, fans will pop up in our head and, and power out of all the time <laughs> our listeners maybe are not aware that it's 9 a.m as we speak so we just had breakfast what did you have for breakfast natasha
0: i had some some porridge and a very british breakfast you know solid porridge are you sure? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Why? Should I be scared?
1: I think you rather had some slices of bread and you spread butter on them. Can you oh, confirm that? I see.
0: That? <laughs> I see. Yeah. 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 It's true. I mean, that I, I am guilty of having, of enjoying toast and butter regularly. I am British after all. Butter, staple, staple part of our diet.
1: That's what, what I had to
0: okay yeah so i had toast and butter yeah okay (laughs) there you go now you can go into your
1: (laughs) why are we talking about butter today because there's a food scandal a buttergate in in (gasps) canada you probably what a
0: good gate that sounds excellent buttergate
1: you probably heard of that Um, it sounds
0: utterly ridiculous
1: (laughs) and it's becoming quite big overseas uh, although it's not clear if it's just media hype or there are some scientific ground. Mm -hmm. So it all started with with consumers actually so uh, Canadian uh, foodies have realised that over the past few months the butter was harder to spread than usual. There was this uh, Canadian cookbook uh, author Julie Van Rosenda who basically asked on, on Twitter if others have also noticed uh, that uh, butter was no longer soft at room temperature so consumers and journalists have started digging into the matter and, and what they found out, Natasha?
0: What they found out? Well, it's quite an interesting story, actually. So there's different theories going around and it's not totally certain what exactly is going on. Um, but the kind of the dominant theory, the one that everyone's talking about a lot, is this idea that basically cows were supplemented with more uh, palm kernel extract, so from palm oil. Um, And this is a practice that, you know, I think producers have been doing for decades it's not it's not a new practice but what we've seen happen is and what the theory how the theory goes is that the coronavirus pandemic has seen the sales of butter go through the roof you know with everyone baking everyone at home there's nothing else to do um which is nice actually that everyone's kind of getting in touch with our with our food and, and baking again um but this has you know put some pressure on the supply chain And the idea is that maybe, uh, farmers were actually supplementing with more palm oil because this is a really energy dense food, you know, so it it helps produce a lot more, a lot more milk. It helps sustain the cows, um, now, the issue is that this palm oil is, you know, it's the melting point of it is quite high. So if you think of other things that palm oil's in, I don't know, your favourite, Gerardo, <laughs> Nutella. You're a Nutella fan, no?
1: I will not deny that I picture all this, this thing like cows eating Nutella.
0: Cows eating. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Actually, why am I explaining it? That's, that's totally, totally what happened. Um, but yeah, this is interesting. I mean obviously, aside from the fact that, you know, maybe this is making, it's changing the consistency of our beloved butter, which is quite a scandal, to be honest, you know, don't touch my butter. Um, But also, obviously, palm oil carries all these other implications, you know, it's linked with heavy deforestation and environmental issues. And, you know, it's seen widely as a kind of environmental disaster in many places, and also is linked with human rights issues. So, it's also got this kind of social, environmental component as well, um, and you know, it, it, it's quite an interesting story. I think of people connecting so much more with their food and trying to understand, you know, where it's coming from and, and noticing these details. I think it's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I guess people didn't really even know that this is what was going, what was going into their food, which or going into their butter, going into their their, their dairy.
1: And we've also done some research, I mean, um, to see if this alleged scandal could also affect Europe and, and whether mm-hmm. there are some implications related to dairy inputs from Canada to the EU. Actually, we found, we found out, I mean, a source we contacted told us that, for instance, in France, it's legal to feed cattle with palm oil. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. on the Livestock Farming Institute website too. And, uh, and we contacted, um, again, several sources, uh, Eurostat too. Eurostat is the statistical office of the European Union. We got some uh, figures about the import um, of butter uh, from Canada. Dairy products ex- export from Canada have risen quite a lot after the CETA, which is the free trade agreement uh, between the EU and Canada. Like for instance, imported cheese uh, went from three tones in 2018 to 106 tones in 2019, but there's not like a huge number for butter um, from Canada in the EU. Actually, it's 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 almost uh, none. It's, um, I mean, we, we import basically nothing uh, from Canada. We also contacted some sources. Uh, In the European dairy supply chain, producers, traders, and they all confirm that there are no implications related to dairy imports from Canada. Also because, again, we import basically nothing from Canada. Um, It's also true that in Canada, there's also a quite complicated subsidy regime that makes Canada not a competitive supplier of dairy products. Uh, The subsidy scheme is the milk class 7 that allows Canada to export powder below the cost of production, uh, but there is no import demand for these products in Europe. So we import nothing. At the same time, um, Canada is an important export market for the EU, especially for cheese. And this has been granted because of the uh, improved market access um, in the form of a zero DT quota under the CETA. We basically read that this butter gate could lead to a shortage of dairy products. I mean, it is expected, some expect some some kind of shortage of dairy products. So uh, we basically ask um, milk producers uh, and, and, and butter traders, Dairy products traders, if they consider this as a good opportunity for EU exporters uh, too, but they don't see a real shortage of dairy products on the horizon in Canada. Again, it's it's um, not something that Europeans could take uh, advantage of in the, in the next months. But still, as as Natasha said, it's it's quite an interesting. Uh, story because again it started from consumers.
0: I think that's actually a really interesting part of this of this whole tale, you know, this guy kind of deep noticing this detail and everyone getting much more in touch with their food and where it's coming from and asking how how it's being produced and what effect this has. I think that's kind of an interesting, definitely an interesting element of this of this story. Also
1: also because they're the first that they could experience a change, for instance in production practices or or a change in, in, in the standards. Uh, of the the production of a certain food products.
0: It also shows how much consumers care about what's going into their food and, you know, uh, the importance of having this kind of regulation and transparency and everything in in the industry. So it clearly shows there's a very, there's a small margarine of error in in these food supplements.
1: Actually, there's another interesting news uh, this week. Uh, this was quite European because mm-hmm. um, the Portugal Agriculture Minister uh, Maria do on Antunes. Sorry, Portuguese listeners, for my pronunciation.
0: Absolutely butchered that pronunciation. I would never do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, my, my mother tongue is is uh, from the Neo Latin um, group, so it's it's uh, at least it's a bit similar. <laughs> Uh, so she will convene a, a joint negotiation meeting with all the three rapporteurs in the European Parliament to seek a breakthrough uh, in the Common Agricultural policy talks. Um, mm-hmm. She called it Super Trilog.
0: Wow, that sounds exciting.
1: These the, the, kind of negotiations, are, I mean, are incredible because we started with the uh, five column and now we, we're having... Uh, uh, a super trilogue so it's it's really pioneeristic I would say mm. uh, and, and, and they also started um, publishing the the four column the four column is, is the
0: They did yeah it's quite an interesting move actually you know in the interest of transparency and it, it, interesting to see
1: I have to say that uh, the reaction to this super trilogue uh, weren't really enthusiastic Oh, yeah? I mean, while we're talking about Super Trilogue, I mean, uh, you know that the Common Agricultural Policy is made of three main dossiers. Mm-hmm. There's one on uh, on um, Common Market Organization uh, with, um, with the rapporteur Eric Andrieu. Um, There's one on on, uh, strategic plan, there's one on uh, horizontal uh, organization, strategic plan with Peter Jahr and and horizontal governance um, with uh, Ulrike Müller. So um, the European Parliament has three negotiators. The negotiator for uh, the ministers, for the European ministers, the council, is basically the rotating presidency. So Portuguese minister and her team, are negotiating on each file, so in order to find an agreement or at least uh, improving the chances to to get a uh, final agreement by May, uh, they want to do instead of separated negotiations. They want to do like a a, a joint one with all the three uh, negotiators of the European Parliament. It's quite interesting because I mean there are some uh, plans uh, proposed by the Commission. I remember there was the like the, the, the clean energy uh, package that was made of, if I remember correctly, six or seven regulation or directives and again they had different negotiations too uh, with different rapporteurs and sometimes you have this this feeling that you're a bit lost particularly not only if you're a reporter, uh, even if you are a negotiator, <laughs> because uh, when they are so interlinked, you need to know what's happening on on another table, no? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's the same with, with CAP, no? I remember that when there was the omnibus uh, regulation, which is basically the update of the past CAP um, program, there was just one. Reporter, um, the MEP Paulo de Castro. So it's not a bad idea. Also because I mean, uh, it's true that they have three different negotiators, but in the end, it's 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 the same institution. No, they, they represent the same hmm. institution, and they have a man a clear mandate. So let's see what happened on this front. As the minister, the Portuguese minister uh, said. Uh, March is the month for um, expecting some kind of breakthrough, and uh, because mm. now, I mean, you know, with with uh, with social conditionality that uh, Natasha is actually covering uh, quite uh, extensively, uh, there are some outstanding issues, no? Definitely. So mm. you know, uh, f- time is uh, ticking, and and. Uh, and um, again, in terms of uh, implementing the amount of uh, delegated ad, uh, directive, regulation uh, that, that will come with the reform of the cap, uh, the lawmakers need to speed up a bit uh, the procedure.
0: It's definitely quite a daunting task to, to piece all this together. As you said, there are so many outstanding issues. It's going to be interesting to see how they manage to pull this together by the end of March. But exciting big cap party everyone's invited and i think you know there's well there's there's many kind of sticking points here there's many things that are left to be hashed out in these negotiations but there are two major issues that i think we see as being you know these, these these major kind of impasse is I'm not really sure how they're going to move past this but one is one that's being discussed for, for a very long time and it's about this definition of what actually constitutes an active farmer um and what you know because the definition of what a farmer is and what it isn't you know really delineates a lot of things it lays the basis for how subsidy program works who gets what um and also you know this issue about small farmers um and how they can you know is there a definition for a small farmer how they can be helped and and aided by the cap um and then there's this other major issue which is uh social conditionality so this is something that if you follow our podcast something we've touched upon um many times uh in the last couple of weeks because it's it's a relatively or or an issue that's come to the fore relatively recently um there's definitely a a strong divide so social conditionality um is basically this idea of tying cap subsidies um to social social elements of uh of the farming sector so that means workers rights making sure that basically farmers can only get paid subsidies if they're ho- upholding a certain standard of workers rights and this you know we already have environmental conditionality in the cap um but this is now another form of, of conditionality um so we have the parliament that's really backed this um and are really pushing for this and then we have the council who are kind of much more reluctant saying this is outside the remit of the cap um and you know they've put forward different proposals for including it um some stronger some weaker but you know there doesn't seem to be a clear a clear path for how social conditionality will will play out um and how this will work out for the for these negotiations so it will be interesting to see kind of what comes from this super trilog in terms of these these main sticking points and if they can move on these points then I think there will be some more movement on the cap trying to get things get things going so it will definitely be interesting to see what happens there
1: you also mentioned basically all the outstanding issues in the strategic plan and horizontal uh, regulation mm. mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time there are like a lot of outstanding issues. In the CMO, in the Common Market Organisation, uh, unsurprisingly, because again, Common Market Organisation is quite big. It's basically uh, regulating all uh, the food stuff marketed in the in the European Union. For instance, it's the veggie burger. Um, the, the veggie burger raw mm, is the in the in the Common Market Organisation. Just for mechanics, the the, the most pop. Um, reference <laughs> uh, on on the agricultural <laughs> policy, but some compromises have been found so far. We've seen something, and, and, and we reported on this in our newsletter on uh, wine, uh, particularly on on the implanting uh, rights. But um, there are there's still something open um, on wine again, uh, particularly the the wine variety, the the one that ones that come from outside the eu like the american variety but there's also a big issue of the uh, market intervention in times of crisis. It's something that we're actually experiencing right now and uh, there's this uh, crisis fund that was considered by the commission and it's still um, a bone of contention between the European Parliament and the the council, the EU ministers uh, because European Parliament wouldn't like to um, uh, split, I mean They don't want that the crisis reserve um, is linked to cap payment in the sense that um, using money from um, this fund won't affect the amount of uh, total subsidies that goes to farmers because it's something like uh, they anticipate, like it is right now, they're basically anticipating uh, payments that would have been Gone anyway to farmers, so it's um, the European the, the, the European Parliament wants to decouple this fund from direct payments, so creating a real reserve fund uh, independent from the amount of money dedicated to farmers su- subsidies, while European Council isn't that on the same uh, page on this. So let's see what happened. I mean, again, it's, it's a long way to May, where uh, both the commission, European Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski and the negotiators aim at reaching an agreement.
0: So that's all from us this week. And this week, like every week, the Agri Food podcast was produced by Euractiv's Agri Food news team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the help of Euractiv's podcast producer, Evi Chiori. You can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms, including Amazon, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher.
1: And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week.